Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You are listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Ancient tools and burials, plants and seeds, Neanderthals. All these things we make no apology for the study of archaeology. But we don't do dinosaurs. No, we don't do dinosaurs. Hello and welcome to the Archaeological Fantasies Podcast, Episode 41. I'm Jeb Card, and with my co-host Sarah, today we're going to talk to Dr. April Besaw about why archaeology is ghost hunting, and ghost hunting is archaeology. Get ready to think critically. You will see are a staple of archaeology, but we don't do dinosaurs, no we don't do dinosaurs, no we don't do Hi everyone and welcome to the Archie Fantasies podcast. I am your host Sarah and I am here with Jeb Carr today. Hello. How are you man? Uh, doing all right. Uh, we just finished grading this morning so I don't have to do that for a number of months which is really really nice. I enjoy being the only person on the show who is not a teacher because I get to listen to you. That's where Ken is. He's grading. I get to listen to the two of you like drop off the face of the planet and grade stuff. And then I don't have to worry about it. Yeah, no, it, this gets a little frantic. My students get really frantic, and then I get frantic immediately afterwards because I have 120 or so this semester, and I have to grade all their things, grade all the things. Well, today, Jeb, we have a special guest and a really cool topic, at least I think it is, and that's all that really matters in the world. So, Jeb, would you like to introduce our very special guest? Uh, yeah, today we have uh, Dr. April Besaw. Uh, I met April when she was doing her doctoral work at uh, Binghamton University. She does archaeology in the eastern United States. Uh, and right now she is an assistant professor at Vassar College. And uh, we may talk about a couple of different things, but I know definitely one of the things we're going to talk about is her work with uh, archaeology is ghost hunting and ghost hunting is archaeology. And this is the 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 topic of a chapter she's got in in this book we've got coming out uh, edited by myself and David Anderson from University of Alabama Press uh, Lost City Found Pyramid and I am not like you know plugging this thing I just you're pimping your book Jeb it's okay uh, no I'm not really you are not. it's all right it's I'm all the right. world I'm the world's worst capitalist anyway um, so uh, hi April how you doing hello I'm doing good excellent excellent um, and so uh, are you ready to talk about uh, why archaeology is is like ghost hunting, or do you want to hit, hit it up with something else first? Or I think we're ready to jump in because that's what people are wondering about, right? Yeah. Now I will have to say I have never done any of that. Uh, we've talked about a few of the weird places and weird things I've done, though not all of them because we haven't been on the show that much yet. But uh, ghost hunting is not amongst them, though we may talk a little bit about related things that I got up to in New Orleans. Uh, Sarah, on the other hand, you've talked about that this is something you know a bit more about. I, I was a ghost hunter, actually. Okay. I, I enjoyed the heck out of it. And when Jeb told me, April, that you were going to be on the show and this was your topic, I was incredibly excited about this. Well, we'll try to keep that excitement going then. Have you right. gone ghost hunting? 
Yeah, I, I only go ghost hunting with my students and uh, oh, that's go ghost awesome. hunting essentially on campus. Um, when I did it in Ohio, it was a building that was on campus and part of campus, but it was abandoned and falling apart. And that only made it even better. Well, yeah. And, uh, then I did it here at Vassar um, in the basement of the building that I'm in right now, the main building, which is the building that Vassar College was started in. Uh, I live in, in a dorm. I don't live in a dorm room. I have an apartment. But we, we went into the basement with the uh, senior anthropology majors right before graduation uh, last year. And I've been on sabbatical this semester, so they haven't gotten to uh, corner me to have me take them ghost hunting here this semester. Okay, so pretend like I'm one of your students and we are going to go on a ghost hunt. What, what do you do to prepare your students for this ghost hunt? Well, they have to do some of the prep work uh, for me. Otherwise, everybody just wants to go, and then I have to do a huge amount of work. But we have to know a little bit about where we're going, um, when it was constructed, what's gone on in there, that, that sort of thing. And I have one of the ghost hunting books from ghosthunters.com, uh, Ghost Hunting 101. Nice. And I make them read the chapters about the theory and the equipment, just like we were going to do in archaeological excavation. They have to be prepared and understand what we're going to do, where we're going to do it. Um, we have to have proper safety for whatever place we're going in. When we did the basement here, they made us wear hard hats because the ceiling is actually very low in the basement down there. Did you um, have to wear but, awful orange vests? Uh, no. <laughs> well, since we're in the dark, nobody could see that we're wearing orange. If we're, we are wearing orange, uh, we always do it in the dark. And for whatever reason, uh, of the three times I've gone ghost hunting with students, um, every single time it's been thunderstorming. But that was not my plan. That's pretty believe, awesome, though. I'm pretty sure that means you may be a wizard. It, it could be. I don't have a hat that's pointy like that. But if you send me one, then I will have one. Well, it wouldn't yeah, fit I, in the basement anyway. So Yeah, it's true. <laughs> yeah, yeah that just, that's, just, that's just common sense. So you make uh, your students do – oh, sorry, Jeb. Well, no, I think I think we're going to ask the same thing, that this is not a, a hobby. You very much tie this into your professional life as archaeology, maybe not as the, as the main thing you do, but you, you definitely do. It's not just like, a, oh, I'm an archaeologist and I do this thing, right? Well, that's going back to the title of the, the chapter, uh, Ghost Hunting is Archaeology, Archaeology is Ghost Hunting. I try to show people how there is that overlap, how they're very, very similar, and there's just slight differences. So in, in a presentation I did for the SHAs this year, the Society for Historical Archaeology, I had a slide that was titled uh, that both ghost hunting and archaeology are about bridging the past and the present. And I had a column for historical archaeology and a column for ghost hunting. And it's the process for each. They both find a site. They both place it in historic context. They both speak to owners or community members. And then the difference is Archaeologists either excavate or maybe not. You know, I'm doing lots of contemporary archaeology where we don't excavate. And ghost hunters turn off the lights. But then we both gather evidence. And if you're an archaeologist, you might backfill your unit or not. <laughs> if you're a ghost hunter, you turn the lights on. And then we both interpret evidence and disseminate results. So it's part of my teaching of archaeology is teaching ghost hunting. So when you're teaching, uh, when you're teaching this particular class, is this a whole semester-long class, or is this just a feature of a class? I usually just incorporate it into a class, depending okay. on what's going on that year. When I was in Ohio, I taught a course called pa The Power of Place, and it was all about this 1852 octagon house 
as our example of what the power of place is. So this was just a building to the students and they didn't even notice it on campus. They had to walk past it to come to class the first day. Oh, and they didn't notice it, yeah. They had no, I was like, we're gonna study the Octagon House. And they're like, what are you talking about? And I'm like, you walk past it. They're like, what? So I brought them out to the house and we stood outside and they, I gave them all notebooks and I said, write down what you think about the house. And most of them said that it was ugly, it was falling down, it should be demolished. I asked them if we should put a Chipotle there. They got all excited about that idea. (laughs) But then we spent the whole semester just studying that house from architectural history to archaeological excavation to oral history. We went through the archives of the college and we put together what this house meant as a place. So the ghost hunting was just one of the different tools that we use to understand that place. In other times I've used it, I taught a course called uh, Science or Pseudoscience, where we looked at debates like, is evolution real? Does vaccines cause um, autism? And then is ghost hunting real? And we also did uh, Bigfoot hunting, and I took the students Bigfoot hunting. Oh, uh, really? Hysterical in itself. <laughs> now Jeb's interested. <laughs> well, there's an online database of Bigfoot sightings. Yep. And the reason it was hysterical is I made the students prepare completely without me. It was one of the last things we did. So I was like, here's all the websites, do all your research. And one of the websites said that they had to have bait. And they brought spicy peanuts as the bait. And I'm never quite sure how they decided that that was the right thing to have. Uh, So we had spicy peanuts in the woods during a thunderstorm with the students making Bigfoot noises, trying to attract the Bigfoot. Um, And they they had cameras, they were taking pictures and things like that. And then in intro archeology, span sometimes I throw it in as a a little module. So it's, it's useful for whatever I'm doing. And if it's not useful, I don't include it. Well, you then, said, oh, go, go ahead. ahead. No, go, no, go ahead. Now, you said you've taught this as part of a pseudo-archaeology, pseudoscience class, you know, teaching yeah. the difference between one or the other. Yeah. Um, when you, have you found when you take students into this, are they going in as skeptics or are they going in as fence-sitters or do they go in as believers? And when they come out of it, after all, all of the evidence is sort, sorted through and all that, do they switch positions ever, do you notice? With... Bigfoot hunting, they were very much skeptical. Um, but with ghost hunting, everybody's kind of quiet about what their opinion is, but very excited to try it out and to have the opportunity to do it. And I and think that I, that, uh, that mirrors uh, general American beliefs. About 18, per- 18 to 20% of Americans believe, or whatever believe means, in Bigfoot, whereas numbers for people who are interested or believe in ghosts is, is over half. I know that. And I never ask them, do you believe or do you not believe? That's not part of what I'm doing. I'm trying to teach them the process and have them show, you know, what what is the evidence and what kind of evidence do you get out of it? And is there any way that it could ever be science? And usually the students always agree that it's not science, but sometimes they all agree that they did contact a ghost. And I don't grade them on that in any way. It's more about were they prepared? Did they do what I asked? Did they have the actual experience? And then we t- discuss the experience and we move on. So I don't make it about the ghosts because for me, the ghosts that I'm talking about 
are more of a phenomenological ghost, more of that if you go back to your childhood home and you can remember you and your friends running around the house and you could almost see them, those are the ghosts that I'm trying to summon in my work. I'm not trying to summon paranormal ghosts. I'm trying to summon historical memories or ideas of historical memory. So if you go to a historic site and they have reenactors, those reenactors are essentially your ghosts. If you go to a historic site that doesn't have the reenactors, and I tell you a really good story about what happened there, you might be able to almost see the people doing what I told you they were doing. So those are the ghosts I'm going for, which is why it doesn't matter if you believe in the paranormal ghosts or not. Do you believe in the historical ghosts, the presences that we can manifest by telling good stories about the past. Well, also in grading your students on whether they can touch the etheric plane might be a little harsh. Yeah, it, <laughs> um, it's hard sometimes. Yeah. Now, so you, you, you've been talking a lot about uh, place and the first class you mentioned, you, you used mentioned place several times. So now this sounds a lot like it's coming out of sort of landscape archeology span approaches. Is, mm -hmm. is that, would you say that's definitely the case? I'm combining uh, landscape phenomenology and the archaeology of memory. And so could you could you explain a little for the audience? Because we have some people who do the profession, some who definitely don't. And frankly, I don't do a lot with landscape, so I probably would be really crap at it. Um, what what sort of landscape archaeology entails or what's sort of the, the idea behind that phrase? So when you're at a site, you know, you could look at what is in the one excavation unit. You could talk about your little activity area. Maybe this was a kitchen area. Or you could look more broadly about why things are where they are with respect to how the whole entire landscape was laid out. So it could be that you have, um, if it's like a plantation, you might have the residence, you might have a kitchen house, you might have the fields. All of these together might then link into the house was positioned because of where it was in reference to mountains, could be where it was in reference to water flow. So you start looking at the entire landscape. And some people who do landscape studies see that the same landscape is inhabited over and over again from generation to generation. And sometimes there are different cultures that are coming into the same place, even though the places adjacent to it aren't being occupied with any regularity. So some places have their own sense of what makes them special. Um, it could be a waterfall. It could be something like that that makes it special. So archaeologists started looking at how people experience these places that make them special places. So it could be that your ancestors used to live there is what made it special to you versus somebody else who's moving into your town. It could be that that old tree is just a really beautiful old tree. So we started branching out in landscape archaeology to start studying how the people that we're looking at in the past experienced the places that they lived in whose artifacts we are now studying. Well, I think that's the fascinating thing is is that even though landscape is technically about non-human, you know, attributes, non-human materials, landscape, it, much of it is actually about creating a, a more human touch versus, oh, look, I found a pit full of things I dissected and now I'm going to categorize them like butterflies. And I, I think that's that's sometimes the critique that, that comes of, you know, more traditional excavation and whatnot. But I think that gets us back to the ghost stuff. Because so much of these stories, and I think the both of you could definitely talk more about this, so I'll just kind of set this prompt up and then be quiet, is 
a lot of it is about humanizing the past and and or elements of community, you know, and 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 that gets back to the usually the the spooky places are either old abandoned and they just look old abandoned and they feel odd to people like the the old abandoned asylum that every upstate New York town seems to have mm-hmm. or uh, they are, oh, this was a place that was an, an important community member or an important community building. And, and again, you mentioned memory. And, and again, you both of you have done the ghost hunting thing. And I think that that seems like that's a big part of it. It's, to me, though, it's sort of an outsider. Yeah, if you don't have a sense of why that place is special, you're never going to find a ghost there. Do you agree, Sarah? I do, actually. When when I was ghost hunting, that was pretty much my role in the group was I was the local skeptic. But my other the other thing I did for them was I did all of their um, back research for them about the area and uh, the houses in uh, specifically that we would go to. And that was so that we knew the history of the place that we were walking into. Now, I wasn't supposed to share any of that with the psychic so that it wouldn't interfere with them. But I shared it with the rest of the group because it's it's interesting. That's to me, that's the the most fun about the ghost hunting is the knowing what you're getting into. And then it's it's like, uh, I don't know, it's like shrinking down and walking through a dollhouse, I guess. Once you actually start doing the investigation, you're just doing it in the dark with a flashlight and a tape recorder sometimes. And if you don't know that backstory, if you see a shadow or hear a noise, you have no context to interpret it within. Exactly. I mean, so if- that backstory makes these ghost hunting shows basically site tours yep. from historical sites. So if you turn the lights on, you've got an architectural history show. You turn the lights off, it's a ghost hunting it's show. It's a ghost hunt. And that's why a lot of the shows that you see on television that I mean, they're still on the air and some of them are still really, really popular, but they always start off with some kind of like catchy montage of crappily exposed pictures and a story about where they're going to be. They're, they're developing that sense of place before they take the audience into that space and start screaming at each other over their cameras. Well, they have to be crappily developed. I mean, we, we know all, all, we know all cryptids are naturally blurry. So of course all, all ghost locations are very poorly developed and, well, and it's have like, that exposure. I, and I say they're crappily developed, but yet at the same time, I'm one of those people that uses all of the filters on Instagram. I love uh, that rubbed look on photos. So when they do that on television shows, I actually really like the pictures. Mine, mine. I never, I've never done any of that. I'm an Instagram fanatic, but yeah. um, you, you guys mentioned you mentioned a dollhouse, and, uh, and and I can see exactly absolutely that thing. Uh, April, a number of the things you've looked at, almost when I think of a ghost house, if I think of a haunted house, I think of a ghost story. Uh, another word, and of course, I've kind of hit this hit this dead horse repeatedly with uh, a tire iron earlier in the show, but not this show, but in the run of the series, uh, screams Victorian. Uh, is that generally the case with this stuff? I don't think it has to be. No. It, it, it could, as long as there's a story there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And specifically a story that has a universal theme of lost love or unexpected death or something like that. That's all you need is something that the people can hook into and they'll start seeing things in a, okay. whatever way you want to perceive that as. Well, let's yeah. feel connected. Let's go to break real quick, and yeah. when we come back, um, we'll pick up on that 
concept of the the universal story creating the ghost. Yeah, and I have I have something else I want to sort of ask about in terms of sort of what how old haunted houses can be. So. The CRM Archaeology Podcast brings together a panel of cultural resource management professionals to discuss the issues that really matter to the profession. Find out about networking strategies, job hunting, graduate programs, and much more. We'll often feature interviews with college professors, CRM business owners, and experts as well. Check out the show on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash CRM Arc Podcast. Let's get back to the show. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks... Then, there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. And we are back, and we're still here with April Besaw, and we are still talking about archaeology and ghost hunting, or ghost hunting as archaeology, which I, again, am incredibly excited about this whole topic. Um, but you mentioned a, t- a term in the last section, April. Could you explain it a little bit more for our audience? What exactly is the archaeology of memory? So the archaeology of memory is an approach that was really popular um, in the early 2000s as archaeologists started to talk more and more about how the people that were studying through the artifacts actually saw themselves in respect to their history. So I'll give you an example um, from my dissertation that was on a site that was right at the southern border of New York State, northern border of Pennsylvania. And there was a large uh, Native American burial ground there. And the site was excavated in the 1960s. And not much was done with it as far as a you know cohesive uh, book about what that site meant. And when I went back and looked at the burials, I noticed that several of the burials had two individuals in them. And one was actually above the other and had slightly different artifacts next to them. But they the bodies were intertwined in a symbolic fashion. So I used archaeology of memory as a way of talking about how I believe these people who we would call the Susquehannock as archaeologists, um, Native Americans of Pennsylvania right before and during European contact, had opened up pre-existing Iroquoian graves that were older 
and interred their own individuals in with these earlier graves as a way of recalling where they came from and who they were related to or the land that they were related to. So the archaeology of memory is looking at the memories of the past people as they perform them that we could see in the archaeological record. So anytime we might have a very old object in a relatively new site, it might have been that somebody maybe 500 years ago collected that artifact and they themselves knew that this was from an older period of time and they thought it was important and maybe they used it in their rituals as a way of recalling their own past. So trying to look at the material remains of how past people thought of themselves and thought of their history is what the archaeology of memory is. And so these were artifacts that were, as an archaeologist put it, chronologically died. I mean, they were sufficiently different in sort of how we deal with time archaeologically. Like, oh, this is not like 10 years or 20 years, even 50 years later. This is, this is a while in this case. Right. And these bodies had to have been decomposed just enough that they could be rearranged um, mm -hmm. without rearranging each individual bone, but decomposed enough that it caused these anatomical anomalies in them. Oh, wow. So, and this is upstate New York, so it's relatively cold for a good part of the year. So uh -huh. the decomposition rates that far down in the ground are kind of slow. So yeah. these weren't last year. They weren't two years ago. And the artifacts, archaeologists would tend to say, were from both a different people and a different time period. So maybe huh. 50 to 100 years. Oh, wow. So trying to figure out what that means if you reuse an old site by actually reusing the people and the objects from that site... Well, we have to think about what those people thought about because they knew that you know this was older stuff. The possibly the the topic that is the most fascinating um, uh, in in some work I'm doing right now uh, is is about reuse. It is is about uh, ancient reuse. You know, finding Olmec jades in the Temple of Mayor of of the Aztecs 2,500 years later is yeah. is just absolutely fascinating stuff. Which is kind of doing the archaeology of old archaeologists, right? Yes, <laughs> like yes. They, they found these things too when they were digging their fields, when they were digging their houses. How did they see the past just like we're trying to see the past? Yeah, yeah. Now it's and, – and which that probably gets a little too into, wow, we can see ourselves in the past. And of course, that's not the same thing, but you know, mm -hmm. absolutely fascinating stuff. Yeah, no, that, I, I think that's uh... – that's not something a lot of people think about. And I, I like that there is the study of memory going on. Yeah. I, I open up my, when I, when I teach my intro to archeology, span I open up with, uh, the, uh, the guy, uh, Nabonidus, the, 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 who's often considered the first archeologist. He was, he was this, uh, the guy that the, dug up he, the Sphinx. Uh, no, no, much older. Uh, oh, actually, no, not much older than there's the guy in the, in the dynastic in Egypt, but he's, like seventh century BC, I can't remember exactly, and he collects all of these these uh, ancient shrines from around the Middle East and brings them and like their attendants. So he doesn't necessarily dig them up, puts them in what people have tried to call a museum to sort of collect all their spirit power. So he's not doing what we're doing, but actually kind of is doing what we're doing. If you start to get all about what museums are supposed to be, you know, and they start out as curiosity cabinets and become, you know, citizen builders in the in the post-enlightenment era and then they turn into something else uh i also point out to my students that he's the last neo-babylonian um king which is probably a statement on uh 
putting an archaeologist in charge of a state or an empire is probably not the world's best. <laughs> it is if you don't want to repeat history. Okay, April. So one of the things we were talking about before we went to break was using uh, the story of a place to help conjure the ghost. And you're using – the reason I had you repeat what archaeology and memory was is you're using the concept of a ghost to be the memory of or the memories of a place. Yeah, there was an article in uh, 1997 uh, by Michael Mayerfield Bell called The Ghosts of Place. And he's really a sociology folklore guy. Um, it was published in a journal called Theory and Society, which isn't something that archaeologists really read um, often. But it is a, a very fascinating uh, read. And he has a section in there that talks about what he thinks of as uh, ghosts. And he says, who has not experienced that flood of images of people long gone or people when they were younger while revisiting an old haunt? So if you go home and you could almost see your grandmother on, on the porch, that's the kind of ghost he's talking about. But he also has very interesting commentary in there about how, like, if you were to move into a new house, you immediately change everything in there to make it your house. Right. And in that way, you're expunging the ghosts so that you're not living in somebody else's house, you're living in your own. And neither of these examples from him is he talking about paranormal ghosts, but just that feeling of being able to see the past in the present if you just know about it and, and can imagine what's going on. I actually have a very funny story that's not really related, but I kind of have to tell it. Okay. <laughs> uh, when, well, you mentioned you mentioned that we remake our houses, and uh, some of us do that more than others. I I do it less. But there was a friend of mine in New Orleans. She moved into a small little apartment in the sort of the edge of the Garden District, and uh, she moves in on the first day, and she's got this tiny little cubbyhole apartment. And the bed area is this tiny little cubbyhole, and she. Uh, she calls me freaking out like sometime in the, in the later evening after it's gotten dark. And what it all transpired is she had turned the lights off and literally at the end of her bed on the wall was a three and a half foot wide, uh, massive devil face leering down at her yeah. as, as, as such things do. <laughs> and, and what it, and, and she freaks out. And so I come over and I'm fascinated. And so what this thing ends up being is that somebody had painted this, thing and had used for at least some of the some some of the highlights translucent or not translucent uh fluorescent paint or you know paint that glow, glow in the dark paint and they had painted over it you know the the realtors not sufficiently but they didn't get the, the translucent the glow in the dark paint well they covered it but it was just with a light coat of paint so you didn't see it i mean one, once you knew it was there you could sort of see it if you looked at it in the right way but you would never have really looked at this unless you're like crazy obsessive so i might have seen it but um <laughs> she turns the light out and of course this thing's been sucking up light for six hours and this thing just boom yeah is on the wall and i'm like this is now my favorite place ever <laughs> And, and so we a actually, trick, though. Oh, I know. It was it was amazing. And and we uh, yeah, everybody do this to somebody you don't like. Um, <laughs> we, I ended up forcing the whole like, let's do time lapse photography. Let's do like a really long enough time lapse, but a really long exposure and get a picture of it, which I probably have knocking around somewhere. But uh, yeah, that's why you make these places your own. So you don't have creepy uh, devil faces layering down. Exactly. Every place is creepy until it's your own place. So that's the ghosts in, in Micah Mayerfield Bell's Ghosts of Place. So, April. Yes. We, we have to talk about 
actual, have you, about actual ghost hunting, and have you ever gone out with a group? A Do you have a ghost hunting troop that you run around with? Uh, it's the, just students that I go out with, so I'm usually the ringleader <laughs> in it. You, there are literally thousands of these groups, and, and I, we're, we're going to have a guest on who's going to probably talk about this a little. And she looked at over a thousand groups, and that was not comprehensive. Oh, no. There's almost every area has at least one, um, depending on how big the city is. Like Indianapolis had two large groups and several very small groups that were very, like, neighborhood-specific. But have you ever gone out with a group of... Are we sure they're not just really nerdy street gangs? <laughs> Actually, uh, funny story I have that. not gone out with nerdy street gangs or with an official ghost hunting group. How's that? <laughs> well, then you just haven't lived, April. <laughs> Part of it is that uh, my colleges are very supportive of this as long as it's academic, and the um, insurance liability of having off-campus people oh, yeah. come in to campus building is just enough that they wouldn't let me do it on campus with these groups. And I've been contacted by groups who wanted me to get them on campus. So the fact that I can't do that automatically sets up a little bit of a, of a negative um, relationship there. But I, I haven't yet. You know, if I met the right group, I would. I'm always a little cautious to make sure that, you know, everything is to the point where I'm an academic and I'm doing this as research and I don't want anybody to use my name or my affiliation as a way of giving them some sort of credence that I might not want to give them. Oh well, yeah. I mean, that's, never, that's a, good. There, there's never any way to prevent that right. other than just being like, no, I, I can't help you. Um, but yeah, well, you, once you start working with them, you, well, you just, I mean, be careful. I mean, yeah, you can't ever prevent it. But I'm, I'm, the one I'm, I love is there was an alien abduction conference in the early 1990s. They rented space at MIT, which, of course, turned it into the MIT conference on alien abduction. Mm -hmm. Right. See, and I don't think colleges should be afraid to do that kind of stuff. It's not a state. I don't feel like it's a statement on the college, even though they know that they do. But mm. I think being open. See, this is my thing. I think being open to the public, even on pseudo-archaeology terms, is Well, the college wasn't doing it, though. The college wasn't doing it, though. It would literally be like the equivalent of, you know, name your favorite pseudo-archaeologist, giving their all their stuff, and it's at your school, and then it becomes your school's thing. Now, if they were like, oh, we're going to have sociologists, folklorists, anthropologists, historians, et cetera, yeah, I think these stuff should be engaged with. And that's, again, I think that gets back to being careful and engaged, frankly. So, April, do you – I'm assuming when the, the different groups contact you, they want to look at specific areas. What areas are they usually looking at, and have you gone with your students to investigate any of those areas? Uh, it was mostly in Ohio. Uh, I My ghost hunting was on the website and in the school paper, and they had read that, and they wanted me to give them access to the places that I had already been. Gotcha. And they pretty much said that they know what they're doing better than I do. Um, which, you know, doesn't increase my 
hey, come on over. Right. I was told by my college that I could not get them access um, to these places. And I generally do attics and basements of college buildings because um, that's the students get to learn about their own campus that way. If I did it for just any off-campus building, it has limited educational you know, importance. The students want to get that sense of that their campus is special and how it's special. You know, they're places that you see every single day and then you see them at night in the dark with an EMF detector in your hand, that's part of that transformation that the ghost hunting is giving me to teach the students about archaeology. The yeah. fact that your everyday place has a history and a mystery to it. It's the same thing when we open up an excavation unit, but I can't open an excavation unit every semester for every single class and get far enough that they get that sense of mystery. But I could bring them into an attic or a basement in one evening and get that. So I've been focused on campus buildings for that connection to the students. I think no, that's, I, that makes a lot of sense. It does. That's why a lot of cities do the ghost hunt or not ghost hunts, but the ghost walks. Um, and I used to give a tour myself. Um, it was a skeptical ghost tour, but it's the same principle. We we go around yeah. to some of the oldest buildings in Indianapolis and talk about the different ghost stories of that building. We're, we weren't looking specifically for the ghosts, but I don't know. Taking a bunch of skeptics ghost hunting might actually be really fun. Oh, yeah. I gave I actually gave one. So the last year I was at Tulane in New Orleans, uh, I, I created one one time. And by the way, all the um, – and, and, and no offense to anybody – all the uh, semi-employed um, – goth drama majors who were doing the various ghost tours in New Orleans in the French Quarter, they looked very cross at me because I was clearly, they thought I was some like competition they had not seen before. One had a very large and menacing walking staff. But um, <laughs> I, I did a haunted and hidden history of New Orleans tour. It was a lot of fun. Uh, and it was also really interesting to see which of the grad students were not entirely aware of exactly how much of their education had been paid for in some capacity by the United Fruit Company and its various literal ties to like the concept of banana republics and CIA overthrowing Guatemala and so on and so forth, uh, which was interesting. We also tried to replicate there's, – there's that bit – as much as the history may be a little wonky, the movie um, – one of my favorite bits is in the movie JFK, the Oliver Stone movie, uh, where they walk around like, oh, there's FBI, there's CIA, there's state, there's that. And we tried to find that spot. And also the fact that uh, in the movie they make a big deal about how uh, Oswald's office was on the other side of, a, of Guy Bannister, another supposed part in, Bill, in, in, in Garrison's big, huge conspiracy, which was wonky. Uh, that's now a federal building, which I only realized when we got there, which I thought was hilarious that the building had been torn down and was now behind bars uh, as part of a federal uh, federal compound. So, but no, that can be a lot of fun if you're if you're. In fact, what we would do is they, we we would hear the other ghost tours and they'd be talking about the little Lori House and all of that in New Orleans. About okay, that part's not true. <laughs> it's made up in the 1930s. There's nothing in the 1800s about any. Oh God, he's got a stick. All right, everybody, be quiet. So yes. You got to watch out for the vadum down there too. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. All right. Let's let's go to break a little early, and when we come back, let's talk about equipment. Oh yeah. Yeah. Let's hear about the gear. Mm -hmm. 
Women in Archaeology is a show about archaeology by the women of archaeology. An alternating panel of women archaeologists discuss the issues in archaeology that impact professionals and the public every day. Check out Women in Archaeology for a different perspective on the past today at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash WIA. Now let's get back to the show. And we are back, and we are still talking about ghost hunting because ghost hunting is awesome, even if you don't believe in ghosts. The first time you get your first orb on film, it's just, it's an amazing moment. And talking about getting your orb on film, what kind Sounds of... Sounds terrible, by the way, but anyway. Orbs are awesome, man. Those are the spirits trying to talk to us. Uh, anyway, April, what kind of equipment do you make sure that your students are using? Well, I've got the uh, EMF detectors. I've got four different ones of two different styles. Oh, my. And some of them are the students understand how to use and the others uh, they don't. There's one that's actually called the ghost meter instead of <laughs> just being an EMF detector. I wanted to ask if any of these were, because I know there's this whole market. Branded. Yeah, made yeah. for the, you know, people started with, I need to find studs with this thing. But then it, they you know, got modified. So, So some of yours are made for that. Well, I, I buy everything off the Ghost Hunter website. Oh, oh, there we go. I, okay. I, so that way we're doing the authentic, like if you're an archaeologist, you buy off of you know certain websites. If you're a ghost hunter, you buy off certain websites, right? Um, I have the infrared thermometer that has the trigger that you point and shoot at something. I love and that get the, the temperature of, we were in an attic and we were getting the temperature of a chair and then we were doing the temperature of the floor and the wall and the, you know, all without moving. I've got the official Ghost Hunter flashlights that if you click it once, it's white. If you click it again, it's red. If you click it again, it's green. Well, it's like those pens I used to have when I was a kid with like the three colors in them. I never did anything useful with them. Go find them at your parents' house and send them to me. (laughs) I could use more of them. Um, I started with a mini cassette recorder, but my students don't know how to use Cassettes. Oh, that's and when awesome! It got to the end, they what is this cuneiform flip thing? Flip it over. They couldn't flip it over. That is freaking amazing. I told them to flip it over, and they were worried it was going to erase what we had just recorded. Oh, I love it. Wow. And love it. sometimes wow. they don't actually record; they just hit play. Which, <laughs> if it's already a ghost hunting tape, adds a little atmosphere when you're suddenly hearing noises and voices um, out of nowhere. Um, so now I use digital recorder. We always have at least one camera going and I try to make it that it's all my equipment, not the students can't use their phone because then they'll be like sending yeah. text messages at the same time. And you, we want all of that, the data to come back to me. So if it's on students' phones and students' cameras, I'm not going to get the data back. Right. When I get all of the data back, so I've got sometimes video recording, um, last time I tried to use my flip cam, um, as soon as we started finding ghostly anomalies, the batteries died, which as a wow. ghost hunter, you know, is supposed to happen. Yes. Um, so I didn't actually have film for that one, but then I put all the evidence together and I make a little YouTube video of the highlights, just like they do on the TV shows. Oh, wow. So if I don't, if it's not my equipment, I can't do that. So those are the basic things, audio recorder, video recorder, more, one or more cameras, EMF detectors, 
and uh, infrared uh, thermometers are the equipment I use. And every student who's with me, which is usually three, no more than four students with me, otherwise it just gets too noisy. Um, every student who's with me has to have a piece of equipment and they are responsible for that equipment and the data that goes on that. So everybody has a job to do. Nobody's just a tourist wandering around. So April, I have to ask you, now it sounds like that you've converted to digital out of uh, necessity, but in the whole, there's, there was a giant debate in the ghost hunting community when digital started, digital recorders started becoming a thing. And there were a lot of people that said that the digital recorders were not as good at recording uh, ghost sounds mm-hmm. um, or EMPs because, it, well, because they were digital, basically, because you they, didn't get were, the static. Better. Well, 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 to be fair to them, there's that whole, the whole stone tape concept, the whole electromagnetic recording of, what is it? Uh, well, pres- and, and also digital, digital things tend to have an internal battery mm-hmm. and when the internal batteries go the device is usually dead it, the, like what happened with the flip cam yeah that so, flip cam is dead now i can't use it anymore exactly and it's you, you can't charge it either because it's an internal battery so it's not like with the with the tape recorder where you can just pop the batteries out and slap new ones in or right. carry a spare battery around with you so you yourself if you had the option would you be analog or would you be digital I like to do what they're doing on the shows because that's my students have generally seen at least one and they're not using the cassette tapes on the TV shows anymore either. So that has kept me from, you know, being, I don't want to have to give a lecture on what a cassette tape is, Uh, but now that vinyl records are back in, maybe cassette tapes will come back. But you're Um, not yelling at demons like they do on these TV shows now. Well, we do do EVP sessions. But okay. the whole premise that you can't hear it when you're there and that the tape recorder is taping it doesn't really add that much to the ghost hunt. Right. Well, I was going to ask, how do, you do your, how do you do your EVP sessions? We, we mostly have one person with the, the video recorder, one person with the, uh, the EMF detector, and one person with the tape recorder. And those three people, it's usually three people and me, are asking questions and things. And they're mostly looking at the EMF detector to see if the lights change gotcha. or if it's the ghost meter to see if the meter moves up and down and it actually makes an alarm beep, 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 if it's detecting a ghost. So they're focused on that and they're just holding the tape recorder. And then later when I get all of the data, I play it back the, the tape recorder and add that to the, the video or whatever I'm putting together. So it's not as important for the actual hunt, but the holding of it and the potential that you're recording something that you can't hear is important to keep that aspect still alive. But you don't get that immediate feedback that you do with the, the EMF detector. Yeah. Well, and that potential thing you, 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 you mentioned kind of leads me to something. So I'm going to be the jerk face skeptic now. <laughs> and I mean more, and, you know, some people might be like, okay, what, you know, this is a, what's going on here? It, do you, not even asking whether you believe it, but somebody might go, well, look, none of this equipment's made to do this. There's no evidence of it. And even in some very famous ghost cases, it's become very clear that the stories that emerge later uh, have nothing to do with any, uh, any like historically documented events that are there earlier. But when you talked about presence and position and, and sort of uh, anticipation, um, 
sorry. You, uh, I think that gets to some of what you're, what you're also kind of like, like you said, you're not necessarily grading your students or doing this work on whether or not they, they come up with a bucket full of ectoplasm, mm -hmm. uh, which again, in finals, we can go somewhere else. But, um, you have another element of what the gear and sort of the concept of investigation is kind of giving you here. Yeah, it, it's it's simulating what we do in an archaeological site with our fancy toys that most people don't understand. You know, what's the difference between a metal detector and a ground penetrating radar and all of this stuff. So it's well, let me tell you. <laughs> exactly. It's that people who do investigations have equipment and what is the equipment giving you? What is each technique giving you? And the fact that you have to understand that story behind it and understand the equipment in order to get results. So if you're somebody who's just going to be digging up your backyard with a backhoe, it's just as bad as trying to ghost hunt without the equipment, without the story. So it's about the process and about understanding what is missing. So sometimes I take the students ghost hunting and I don't give them any story or any back information and they're bored. You have to understand what you're looking for and what the research questions are in order to be engaged. And that's what we have to do more with our archaeological sites instead of just being like, look, here's George Washington's boyhood home. Who cares? It's George Washington's boyhood home. You have to give them something that they're looking for, some question that they're going to be answering by touring the house or by joining an excavation there. To just dig in the dirt for a lot of people isn't very exciting. They have to be able to find something and be able to put that in their knowledge base. And it's the same thing with ghost hunting. I've been on some really boring ghost hunts, and we usually just move into a different room, and then sometimes something will happen. We had a great thing happen in the basement here in Maine. The students were all doing this EVP session, and they had all the equipment. I didn't even have a flashlight. I was just recording them. And I told them to be quiet. And they're like, what's going on? I'm like, do you hear that scratching noise? And they immediately think that I'm setting them up. I'm like, look, I'm right here. I'm right next to you. That scratching noise is coming from the corner. And they start huddling closer and closer and closer together because <laughs> the noise got louder and louder and louder. And it was clear I wasn't doing anything, but the EMF detector had been going crazy at that same exact point. So we were sure we were all going to be like taken into hell or something like that. And it turned out there was a Dunkin' Donuts styrofoam cup in the corner and slowly coming over the edge was a huge cockroach Ew. and the shape of the cup was making the noise louder and louder and louder and they all screamed and we had you know we all laughed about what was going on there so there has to be something going on whether it's at our site tours our historic houses our archaeological excavations or our ghost hunting there has to be something more there than just holding equipment and being in the dark or, or outside. Well, and that's well, why places like Connor Prairie in Indianapolis, uh, Indiana and Indianapolis has, has, a, has had a better time of reaching out to the community and the public because they've started doing what they call living history. And I mean, they've always been a quote unquote living history where, you know, you got the blacksmith and he's smithing and you've got the lady who's putting up the laundry and cutting herbs in the backyard. But recently they've, and recently I mean like in the last 10 years, they've started doing these things where they'll take people on a freedom run where they, you, regardless of who you are, you show up for this. It starts in the middle of the night and you are a runaway slave and you have to sign a waiver and everything because it can be a very emotional experience. And according to everyone who does it, they don't pull too many punches 
with the whole language that they use and the way that they reenact the whole experience of running away as a slave. But that simple thing has like exponentially increased their attendance. Those things sell out every freaking year. And that's because people are interested in the history, but they want to participate in the history as well. And it sounds like that's what you're using ghost hunting to do. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm trying to show elements of understanding and critical thinking and being inquisitive about the past. Well, you had mentioned like George Washington's house, and I cannot remember the, the author's name for the life of me. But there was something I was reading about about heritage and the and the heritage houses and all you know in 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 the UK and how so many people who visited them, it, it ended up feeling like, oh, we we visited these because we're we're supposed to, mm-hmm. and then they walk around, they see the thing, and they're like, oh, we did our thing. And so many of like the the historic sites, historic house, historic sites, I've seen that is often people's reaction. You can sometimes see that in other sorts of heritage sites as well. Whereas I'm like, no, I'm not digging in the ground because I, I, no, I want to do that because I'm trying to solve a mystery here. I'm trying to like figure out a thing. And, and that I think is, is sort of what you are in fact sort of playing with here. Yeah. Uh, so many people now with their cell phones just want a selfie outside George Washington's house. They don't even care to go in right. because there's nothing to be answered. There's nothing to be gained. And they've proved that they've been there. You know, When the Society for American Archaeology Conference was in Memphis, I went to Graceland, saw how expensive it was to get in. I just took a picture of myself outside the gates and was done. Right. Mm-hmm. So you don't have to go into these places unless we give people a reason to go into these places. And one of my arguments in my ghost hunting as archaeology is that ghost hunters bring people along on the journey. And that's what archaeologists haven't been doing. We have a great fun doing archaeology. And then we stand there and give a boring lecture of our finds. But how many times were we wrong when we were figuring things out? That is the fun part of it that we don't tend to share with people. And ghost hunters do it better than us that they share when they get scared and then they show that it was actually a dog or a rat or something like that. We don't share that when we thought that this was something important and it didn't turn out to be. So all they see is these overeducated people telling these boring stories Whereas if we all were to learn something from ghost hunting, it would be that people want to come with us, whether they're doing that sitting on their couch or whether they're doing it at the site. And they don't want to just move dirt. They want to understand, like, why are we here? What does this mean? And it's hard to teach them enough for a field excavation in a day or one of those family fun days for them to really get any meaning out of that. I was working for a a local history museum and we had one of those family excavation days and I was screening with this mother and her daughter and I was telling them about all the research I was doing on the food that they had been eating at this colonial tavern and I noticed she was putting something in her pocket. She had been collecting pig teeth the whole time we were screening and shoving them in her pocket and I confronted her. I'm like, what are you doing? She's like, oh, these aren't artifacts. They're just pig teeth and I'm like, what are you going to do with those? She's like, I'm just going to take them home so I have a souvenir. Even though I was telling her about my research, she wasn't making that connection that she was actually stealing the data that I needed for my research. So we need some other way of making them understand what we're doing and how we're doing it that shows that fun aspect, that shows that science aspect, that shows that you need knowledge of the past all at the same time without being boring. 
Well, that's I, to be a devil's advocate here to your to your position that or your position what you're trying to what you're trying to do. That would I think that would be my argument is you know if we're just playing like the the detective, if we're just playing like the the mystery investigator, but we're also caretakers. We we have to be because these are non renewable resources. They're often fragile. And then there's the third sort of thing that separates us. The as you said, it's you can't teach them in one day. You know, it's like, oh look, I need to learn. I need to go to school. How long to look at fish ear bones to look at climate? What? Yeah, but, but they don't want to look at fish ear bones. That's the thing. Well, that's what so many of our episodes are about is the fact that they only want to look at like carved monuments to tell them the Phoenicians were here. Right, but they're not. But it's not even that. They're not just. They don't want to just look at the carved stuff and the big shit. I mean, that stuff, sorry, I swear a lot, by the way, April, sorry. <laughs> um, they, there's the reason why all of that big stuff is so imaginatively drawing to people is because I just figured this out today as I was reviewing another episode of that wonderful show that I hate. Um, the reason people do the pseudo archeology span and the reason why people can get big names in it is because the words that they use, they don't say we're digging a unit over here because we found this on our uh, on our radar, blah, 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 blah. And that's all they hear. It's like it's like the the peanuts parents. Mm -hmm. What they say is I have a puzzle and here are these pieces. They literally will say these words. There is a puzzle and I have all the pieces. I have to figure out how they fit together. Now, you and I immediately go, that is a bad statement because you're going into it with a, an assumption of being able to find blah, 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 blah. People don't give a shit about that. What they hear is, here is a puzzle. Here are the pieces. Figure out how they go together. And that's what, that's what we do as human beings. The, our brains are wired to do that. So when you present that, and, and I think ghost hunting does present that the way that April is saying is, she says, here is the backstory. Here are the cool gizmos and gadgets that you're going to go collect stuff with. And when we have all this stuff collected, we're going to put it all together. And there's either a ghost trying to talk to us or there's not, you know, and it's the excitement of figuring out how to put the puzzle together. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I feel I very much feel that. I mean, what, what you're just I mean, not exactly, you know, what uh, uh, Mr. W or whoever you're talking <laughs> about uh, is is Such saying stuff. specifically, but. You know the oh my god! I'm looking at these little clues, and I'm going to figure out something. What not necessarily this particular thing, or maybe I won't. Maybe it'll end up being all chaotic and messy, but that's fine. Uh, but I, you know, and April's talking about we we do these things. We have that fun. We have that fun of of, of figuring these things out. We and, have that fun, but right. we don't communicate it very well to everyone else. We as archaeologists do not communicate that well. No, and, and but I think that's where these other two problems come in. One. The caretaker thing with oh, I'm solving this by sticking pig teeth in my in my pocket, right? Well, or the expertise thing of oh look, I'm looking at these pig teeth. Well, actually, I'm just going to make up a story about Phoenicians, and then that will become what we tell people. Or alternatively, Phoenicians building say Great Zimbabwe instead of you all because that's what I'm. You know, you see, you know, again, the stuff that we're we're talking about. And on the one hand, I think there's we do have a lot of communication problems. On the other hand. There are some things that we have to do whether we like it or not. Uh, no, I, yeah, yeah, I agree with you on that. And April, I want to give you the chance to have the last word here because we're, we're running out of time and I want to make sure that you have a chance to talk. 
Well, in response to the preservation thing, every place I take students ghost hunting or just tell them the ghost stories of that place, they feel so connected to that place after. The students in that Power of Place class formed an organization to save that octagon house at the end of it. I didn't tell them to. So if we give them these experiences, people want to be preservers for what's going on. And for the other aspect, people want there to be magic in the world. They want there to be more than just what we tell them is, oh, the climate is always changing and this and that. And we'll never be able to completely address that desire for there to be more mysticalness in the world because that's beyond our science. And I think think completely ignoring it is to some degree a mistake. Right. We, we can't keep just running around debunking things and saying that we're smarter than everybody else. We need to show people what we can do and how the past is really part of our present. And that's what ghost hunting does. And I think we could all learn a lot from it. I, I appreciate that, that outlook. I really do. Um, yeah. So thank you very much, April, for coming yes, on the show you. with us. Thanks for having me. And thanks for being a a fellow ghost hunter, even if it is just on your college campus. I'm sure there's (laughs) lots of ghosts to be found there. All right. (laughs) All right. No, this is this has been fantastic. And um, uh, again, yeah, thank you for thank you for being on. And and we will we will definitely talk about all your your various and sundry ghost hunting adventures in the future when the uh, the book that I'm not plugging comes out. All right. (laughs) Plug the book, Jeff. It's okay. It's going to happen again. So. Rate the trials as one will call No way down to a dinosaur Thanks for listening. We hope you've enjoyed it. Our music was provided by Archeosuit Productions. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe and rate us on iTunes or Stitcher and share us wherever you use social media. You can contact us with your questions, comments, or angry email at archiefantasies at gmail.com. You can follow the podcast at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com slash archiefantasies. You can follow the blog at www.archiefantasies.com and get updates on Tumblr and Twitter at Archiefantasies. You can also look for us on Facebook. If you're looking for the show notes for this episode, go to the podcast website at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com slash archiefantasies. Thanks again for listening. No, we don't do dinosaurs. No, we don't do dinosaurs. We don't do dinosaurs. This show is produced by Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www archaeologypodcastnetwork.com Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com